Welcome back. This is the 43rd episode of AIR, an interview podcast series with a different theme each episode. Joining me this month is Christina Seely, producer, live performer, and one half of Canadian industrial techno duo Orphix. Christina and her music partner Rich Audi founded Orphix back in the 90s, early on using what few instruments they'd collected, a reel-to-reel tape machine, some microphones, and an effects pedal, to craft the kind of visceral sound they've since become celebrated and loved for. Slowly, they added in more instruments, analog gear and software, but also primitive pieces like sheets of metal, drills, kitchen utensils, razors, anything they could manipulate to their creative liking. Their intense and often raw style of music is a kind of meeting point between rhythm and noise, with works like Pitch Black Mirror, Division, and Fragmentation leading the charge. In this conversation, Christina and I discuss her love of primitive instruments, the creativity of limitations, and how to make music with what you've got. Christina, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, I'm happy to chat. <laughs> this is great. We're here today to talk about this topic of primitive instruments and the idea of making music with what you have. And I know that that's something that you and Rich were quite well known for when you first started Orphix in the 90s. Um, obviously, things have changed for you guys as musicians since then, but I wonder if that mentality has sort of remained, or are you now like working in your dream studio with like all the equipment and hardware that you've always wanted yeah Yeah. no I think it's always important to go back to those kind of rudimentary uh, ways of working and I still try to approach things like that in the studio now anyway and and we're always back and forth too we get into phases where you know you're trying out new equipment and you've got so many you know fun new things that we can actually afford to buy Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think it's um, always um, a good idea to go back to the basics as well, too. You start listening in a different way, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, And I try to approach like new instruments in the same way as well, too. Trying to just um, explore them without, you know, maybe using them in the way that they're designed to be used, but mm-hmm. just experimenting with them. Mm-hmm. So do you hope that, like, no matter what, sort of position you find yourself in that you keep that back to basics mentality that like you don't have to have every piece of equipment in the world to make music like do you think that that keeps you grounded for example yeah I think so I hope so um I know there's always you know you always there's always things that you want to have or you know you hear and you know there's always some dream thing that you you don't have and you think you absolutely need but Yeah, I I think that idea of being able to kind of work with anything is important, Um, you know, no matter what kind of equipment you have. I mean, it's not going to make any difference, really, if you have really amazing equipment, if you don't have a vision for for what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't always have a good vision. Sometimes it takes like a few weeks of working on something and then and then I you know, have a few sounds that kind of come together. And then, you know, by accident, often, then you can go through and decide, okay, how am I going to make what I want? Mm-hmm. And um, what's the best way that I can make those sounds? And, you know, and I, I think you can do that with with anything, really, um, you don't need a huge studio full of gear and sometimes it can be overwhelming too mm. there's too many things to choose from <laughs> I, I like going I, like sometimes it's I think back to those times when there was nothing there and you had to really like work with what you had and I think make something sometimes more creative um in that way mm-hmm. I mean I guess the other thing is also like even if you do have every possible piece of equipment that you could possibly want it doesn't necessarily mean that the music like you said will be better or even good at all 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it, it just really depends on, on what you do with it. And yeah. And, and, and yeah, like I was saying too, I mean, it can be overwhelming. There's so many different choices right now, even with like the programs themselves. So say, you know, you're recording, I'm using Ableton, um, but you know, with any kind of DAW, it, there's just so it's endless what mm-hmm. you can do, um, with that. So, you know, it's, um, sometimes when you have that huge studio, you still need to make restrictions for yourself and, mm. and that can be good for creativity, just deciding, okay, I'm only going to work with this particular type mm-hmm. of instrument today or restrict to a different, you know, particular type of sound or certain way of working. Mm. Um, so in terms of like buying new equipment to use, have you ever had this experience of like, you know, you spent all this time and money collecting new pieces of gear only to sort of revert back to your old ways and just use a few key pieces because you felt like it actually didn't accomplish the goals that you thought that it would? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. Sometimes, um, sometimes a piece of gear will sit there for a little while, not knowing its place. (laughs) Um, You know, um, you get it and you, you hear something, uh, you know, that's been made with that and you're like, Oh yeah, like that's going to be really great. And then you get it, but then, it doesn't really have a place in your own kind of palette, your own way of working mm. yet. And so sometimes it has to work its way in there. So it might just kind of hang out on the sidelines for a while <laughs> until it's um, it gets discovered or you have time to just um, experiment with it. You know, I can't really say I've had any pieces of gear that I've, I've gone and sold or, or that I haven't used maybe like one or two things that I've, I've like maybe replaced, but that's more of like finding um, like a better way of making that particular type of sound. Hmm. Yeah. I don't think I've actually ever purchased anything that I've, I haven't used. (laughs) That's good to hear. (laughs) I was turned away or whatever, but (laughs) that's not to say that, you know, that that wouldn't happen. But um, yeah, I'm also kind of like, I, you know, I try not to buy new gear unless yeah. it's, I, I'm, I need a particular sound. Um, and so then I'll go out looking because as soon as you start looking, you see everything that you need, right? <laughs> <laughs> but you don't necessarily really need it. But um, yeah, there's always so much, there's, yeah, there's tons of stuff up out there that, you know, um, that I would want if I started looking for it. <laughs> and so when you say that you're like, going out to look for something that you want to make a particular sound like is it kind of like that thing where you when you're shopping for something that you and you really want something specific you just can't find that thing like do you have trouble like sourcing the correct piece in order to like fill this sound hole yeah yeah totally yeah you know there was certain envelopes I was looking for for my modular and you know just um you know I spent forever just trying to find the right envelope and you know none of them were quite right and I wanted this kind of uh sequencing element that I to the sequential switch I was looking for for a while and I just like couldn't find something that made the right kind of patterns and the right sounds for the mm. the system I was using and so I mean I just like there, I, it just kept waiting <laughs> and trying out different things oh that's not going to work and yeah, I, I didn't want to get something that I wasn't really happy with. So, is that um, what you meant before when you said like limitations? So, like when you couldn't find specifically what you needed, did you then use something else in a new way in order to accomplish that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then just going back to like the simple items, and often actually, I find when I'm going when I'm making like down to sound creation, I'm I am often just using like the the real like basic components, like let's say of my the modular which I use. Um, you know, for a lot of the recording at the moment. Um, well, I think I find that the the most simplistic modules are the ones that often I can use the most creatively because, um, you know, a lot of new modules, they'll make some really amazing, crazy sound, but it's like good for making that one amazing, mm-hmm. crazy sound and maybe not so versatile for... Mm-hmm fitting into, you know, and working with in a lot of different ways, whereas those really simple um, components are often the ones that you can manipulate the most creatively. Just last year, you and Rich did an interview where he said that although you both learned so much about sound design and composition, like sometimes that all of that knowledge 
just gets in the way. Like, as you mentioned before, with just having too much gear, it's like the same sort of thing, I guess, with your knowledge about sound design. Uh, And he said that the best music often comes from a very pure space. What does that mean exactly for you? When you, when I, I find when I'm making something that I'm really excited about, I'm not thinking about some other previous track or a certain way that something should sound or what an, I think an audience might like to hear more. It's the sound that, that di- is directing everything. So I'm really listening and in that there's something very, something very specific that comes out of uh, a particular sound that kind of strikes a chord with whatever I'm working on conceptually. So um, yeah, I don't know how to describe that so much, but it, it would, something that's not, um, say, focused on, you know, a specific rule or specific way that something should be done, but mm-hmm. is more just about that particular sound and just about that concept and being kind of in that own insular little bubble space where, you know, nothing else is kind of coming in to influence it. I don't know if that really explains it properly. (laughs) So is that like the purest space for you personally as an artist where it's like just kind of coming out of you and you're not thinking about any other sort of elements or any other sort of like rules or thoughts or expectations? Yeah, like, you know, say the first moments when I had that, say like the modular equipment, I didn't know how to use it. And, you know, a lot of the, the things that I did when I was making that were just about not about how I thought it was supposed to be used, but just about the random things that happened by accident and like listening to those and finding something exciting about those particular sounds and then, mm. and then pushing them. And now I can kind of take what I know from that and then tie it into other things that I know about how to use. I've, of course, been reading a lot of your interviews, and you actually mentioned this uh, a couple minutes ago, but you said previously that you both go through a lot of phases of sometimes using more hardware, sometimes using more software. Um, So what generally drives those different phases? Like, is there a turning point, or is it more of sort of like a natural progression of just like what you're interested in at the time? I think when we find ourselves getting into, I can speak for Rich as well, into like, say, a routine of using something in a particular way, you find yourself creating the same sorts of things, Mm -hmm. then it starts to become um, less exciting. And you, you have this kind of way of working. And I think we start switching back and forth between the two when um, needing to be um, pushed in a different direction again. So Mm -hmm. when you yeah, you find yourself getting into um, a routine, I guess, in a way, and then you want to break up that routine. Mm-hmm. And, and and so then you kind of go back to rediscover uh, another way of working to kind of bring back into what you know now. So it's always kind of a back and back and forth. You know, you learn something new with, with like, say, processing and the recording equipment and um, and then that kind of pushes things in one direction. Um, and then kind of going back into the analog, you get something new oh. that you can then bring back into what you know and, and back and forth so mm-hmm. that, you know, that use of the analog can then create a new approach to the, the use of the programs as well, too. Mm-hmm. So when was the last time that you found yourself in a completely new phase in terms of what you're making music with? Yeah, the, the past um, couple of years, I, I think, think over the the let's say 2020 was a difficult year for just um you know got in, got a bit lost um i'd say um and you know there's a you know a certain amount of dissatisfaction with what we were making we've been trying to put out a release um for the last you know year and a half um and just been on uh you know dissatisfied with the the sound and the direction and i think this is like the point where we're um, trying to push things in a new direction. It's like that 
point of frustration where you're kind of on the edge of, mm. of I guess, some tension and anxiety about the sound and that kind of pushes things um, mm. because, you, you know, there's this sense of dissatisfaction and then you're trying to come up with new ways of creating sounds and um, perhaps composition and, um, and that's where I am at the moment, really, that I've gone back still working with the modular, but also um, experimenting with different ways of, um, of using that and um, going back to old, older modules that I haven't used for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's kind of where I am at the moment. Even I've been experimenting with bringing in guitar and that sort of thing again as well too. So um, yeah, just, um, and then changing up um uh, yeah, I'd have how those elements say might come through the modular or um, um, how I'm, I'm composing with mm-hmm. them. So other than just like sonic interest, I guess, is there also mm-hmm. a financial aspect that comes into this as well? Like obviously buying a lot of new equipment is a really big burden financially. So if you want to keep up with what's new, that can make things kind of difficult. So is that something that is also influencing in terms of, you know, instead of buying something new, going back to something else that you already have? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess to a certain extent, maybe not consciously. I mean, I don't have some an exhaustive, you know, uh, <laughs> means to like buy new gear and there's like tons of stuff that I would like, but I also have a lot of friends that have studios. Right. And so I do a lot of borrowing uh-huh. um, and um, trading and, you know, not trading permanently but like just testing things out so um cool. i have a, a friend uh jeremy greenspan who is more of a um, electronic um pop project called uh, junior boys and then another friend yeah jesse lanza who uh they uh, work together on um, music as well too um but uh, jeremy's got a really great um studio space and mm-hmm. so we're often testing out new gear often mm. his new gear <laughs> and try out um so I don't feel like I'm at a like a, I have a lack for, right. for for that sort of thing at the moment just because even if I can't get it myself um <laughs> I could convince him to get it or, or go out and and test it out at his face so um and you know and, and there are other friends like that as well too so I think no like at the moment um the 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 reason for going back to basics um or kind of yeah going back to that you know say let's say cheaper or (laughs) more rudimentary gear is more just for creative interests and in trying to like say I'm, I'm a painter as well too and if I'm you know stuck in on my painting in the same way I might um, go out and and try a different type of material that I haven't mm-hmm. used before to try to um, you know find a new way of working and then I might go back to my you know old way of working but I've got these new insights that I can right. bring into it. So is that also just this sort of creative fuel is that also the reason that your explorations outside of like traditional music production started <laughs> when we were first starting we did not have any money <laughs> we did not have all that amazing gear and so you really you're just like okay how can I make that sound and what do I have available and there's something really fun about that too and just being like um yeah having to be creative with what you have um and yeah, the excitement in finding something new or a new way of making that sound that you heard that, you know, required some piece of expensive gear, but you've somehow managed to work out. But um, yeah, I know we did not have the means at the beginning. So. so what kind of explorations were you doing in those days? Like I read in your RA feature that was actually five years ago now, um, yeah. but you, you talked about how you were using reel-to-reel tape machines and effect pedals and maybe like one synthesizer yeah. and some microphones. So can you speak a bit about that early setup? Yeah, yeah. Actually, we, um, um, for um, noi- uh, noise engineering, um, sort of online live show that Rich and I did last week, we brought back in those uh, reel-to-reel tape. It had been, <laughs> cool. um, yeah, again, like back into like trying to knock things out 
do something different. We had, mm-hmm. um, I would pull out all of my old reel to reel loops mm-hmm. and, um, and uh, use some of those for that. But yeah, the reel to reel stuff, those were like, you know, I'd find at pawn shops, these old mm-hmm. um, two track reel to reel tape, and you could still get splicers and that sort of thing. Um, and we, and I was listening to, you know, more experimental music and electroacoustic um, composition. Mm-hmm. And so that would have been an influence there as mm-hmm. well, too. So, you know, community looking at how those artists were making sounds and then wanting to go back and kind of try out some of those methods and then being uh-huh. able to, because those pieces of equipment were inexpensive. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so we used um, yeah that reel to reel stuff through effects pedals, like guitar pedals. And uh, we had a cheap um, digital processing box um contact mics I used a lot of different contact mics set up in different ways so um I remember we for a lot for some of our earlier performances I had made these kind of drone type sounds using contact mics on a spaghetti strainer um, <laughs> and I had really I like lost sight of the fact that it was a spaghetti strainer and I still have it in the basement I often kind of pull it out experiment with it but like I I had forgotten that it was a spaghetti strainer so I would bring it out sometimes we do a live gig and I'd have the spaghetti strainer out and I'm using that to make this music and it's just totally forget it was my instrument and I was forgetting that you know it still looked like a spaghetti strainer and people would come up after be like is that a spaghetti strainer (laughs) yeah yeah it is actually and we had some like toy toy shakers and different things Mm -hmm. you know had like googly eyes on the sides of them and you forget like that they're just like kids toys (laughs) Um, yeah um sometimes embarrassing when you sort of clued into the fact (laughs) Um, and I think that you also used things like sheet metal, yep. also like old radios. Yeah. Um, so like what other weird things were you using? Yeah, yeah, random. Yeah, like sheet metal. Again, it would, the sheet metal often had like a contact mic on it or um, you would you know, we'd use that scraping a stick against the side of it and sometimes just miking it. We were using mini discs uh, as well, so we would record our sound and then put it in, um, and sometimes sample it, or somebody just play it back on a mini disc or a CD. Mm-hmm. Um, or we, when we were traveling, we would re- record sounds on a, a Walkman. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's an old, um, old crappy Walkman. Um, they just take around and you know record while wandering. Oh yeah, those are some cool church bells. So, yeah, we could use. <laughs> And um, and record that, or the sounds of of cars, like a lot of vehicle sounds, um, you know, nature sounds. Yeah, shortwave radio. I had this one kind of tin. It was just like the a lid from a tin, and then I had put a contact mic on it. But it um, the contact mic had these wires that I had soldered onto it, so the wires would spread out along the the edges of this metal plate. So mm-hmm. then um, all the different surfaces would kind of pick up the sound at different points in time. And so you could put dirt in the pan and then <laughs> shift this dirt back and forth. Yes. Um, and so then cool. it would move around and create, you know, these kind of different shifting, sliding sounds. Mm-hmm. And it would be really hard or, you know, hard to get, you know, that kind of sound otherwise, you know, yeah. by accident, really. What can we put in the pan? Some marble or some dirt or and, um, and then you know processing that yeah putting reverb and you know delays mm. and that sort of thing so I was going to ask like how you end up using those sounds like is it direct from recording straight into whatever track you're making or I can imagine there's like some effects or like layering of sounds yeah like a lot of layering and like cutting out um of of you know, pieces like, so like splicing, like I would with the, um, say the tape loops, but, you know, sample splicing. So some of them would go in straight, like, um, if it was like a, a field recording, it might just go in straight. Um, 
but a lot of the times they were being, you know, looped and delayed and layered. And that's how you would build the composition or some kind of melodic pattern might be created by piecing out different um, portions of that element. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had like a heater, like a, a space heater that made kind of like a drone. Um, <laughs> and so that was like a good drone bass sound. <laughs> love it. So can you talk a bit about your experimentation technique? Like, is it really just as simple as like picking things up and trying them out or moving them in this very sort of tactile way until something sounds good? Yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah. And I, and I guess I'm like a really tactile person too. So mm -hmm. I like, I like having the things in my hands. That's why I like the, the modular because mm -hmm. everything's out displayed. I can, you know, I can touch it and move it and it's very, it feels much more personal and that would be the same way that I would work with those more experimental approaches. So yeah, really just picking things up, throwing, you know, moving them around, adding bits of wire um, to them, um, making things that don't work and sound really bad. Um, and like a lot of it is like that. Um, so just like recording everything all the time. And, and that was what a friend had suggested to me when I first got my modular system actually was just have the record button on all the time because you never know what will, what will come out and that you might not be able to repeat again as well. Right, too. right, right, right. So, you know, the idea is that you want to do something that you are experimenting with and that you can repeat so that you can, um, you know, sort of uh, like perfect it, I guess, or take it to mm -hmm. a new direction. But um, even um, like experimenting with different electronic components together um, or um, something simple like those with the contact mics, we had, um, I had this old shaver. Um, I did have the good sense to like, it was like, you know, a lady shave or whatever, you know, one of those like um, leg shavers. Um, and I did have the good sense to put black duct tape around that one. So it didn't look like this, like light pastel green ladies um, shaver. But um, so, anyway, but yeah, you use that on, oh, I'll use it on some metal. What kind of sound does it make on metal? What kind of sound does it make on a rock on wood? And, you know, sort of pushing those art different instruments, I'll say in quotation marks, um, <laughs> their limits <laughs> um, to see what they can do. So in a previous interview of yours, you guys called this a very like physical way of working. Um, yeah. So do you think that that physicality or like hands-on approach maybe brought something different to your sound, like more of an intensity or like a visceralness that you don't get when you're just sitting at a desk or at a computer? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And, um, and, and for live um, gigs as well, too. Like, I, I think, um, because there's the element of chance involved with that, mm -hmm. and, this, um, and the and the physicality you're getting, you're moving your part of the sound, there's so many other pieces of like, sensory um, information happening, then mm -hmm. at that moment. And, um, and, you know, working with that sort of thing live, there's like a, a real um, intensity that comes with that too, because it could sound bad, you know, um, there's this, the, you know, big amount of chance involved. And that's kind of what I like about the modular as well, too. It can certainly um, be frustrating when in, something doesn't make the sound that you want it to, but, um, but there's, it also adds some intensity and that's really what was at the core of our music um, mm -hmm. to begin with as well too and and I think does does still make it stand out in some some ways and um and kind of gave an individuality to our sound you mentioned um enjoying being sort of like in charge of your own sound I don't know if that's actually exactly what you said um but I wanted to ask if, like if, is there an excitement that's inherent to the experience of like actually using your body and moving and like touching things with your hands sort of thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I know for sure. Um, yeah. Like any, any sort of, um, I mean, we, we had a, a kind of traditional gig band um, years ago, Rich and I had a, a, we started off with a shoegaze band. So um, he played keyboards and I played guitar and he did vocals and that sort of thing. And, you know, in any kind of um, project like that, where you're like, you're physically interacting with something, like there is that intensity to it. And 
um, the the physicality is like the movement is part of the sound. Um, and even if that's not something that's like audible in the recording, right? That's like part of the energy that goes into mm. the creation of the sound. And mm -hmm. I think that really comes out in like say a traditional music where you have a guitar and um, and it's not to say that you can't um, get that sort of thing working on the computer, but it is a different experience. Mm -hmm. It's more, I would say like an intellectual experience than mm -hmm. um, one that's kind of tied in physicality. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, we try to bring both those things together and use everything that we have available you know, I don't really have anything that I wouldn't use. Like, let's say, okay, I can only use analog gear. Or I can only use analog keyboards and not digital keyboards. Or, you know, there's no rules really. I don't, you know, I don't think there's any hierarchy of like sound creation. Another instrument that we, I guess, don't always think about is, of course, the voice. And yeah. that's something that Orphix used and uses a lot. Yeah. Um, can you talk about that? Like, whose voice are we hearing usually? Uh, and what is it like recording that? Yeah, um, that's rich. Normally, I did do a little bit in our earlier recordings that he, like, um, had been, you know, threatening to release <laughs> at some point um because like i i'm not one i don't and yeah it's probably ties into like i'm not that great at speaking here but um I, I don't really i don't express myself very well with like words or voice so i i don't feel comfortable so much doing the vocal elements and i think like the early bits were like screamy bits or something i don't know um but uh yeah normally it's it's rich and we did go out through a phase where we had just so like pure electronic um you know no um um or you know pure just like sound and and no mm -hmm. voice and um and then we like and then we started to bring that back in. And I, and I think in a similar way to, you know, what I was talking about before, you just got into this kind of pattern of, you know, this mm. was how we worked. And then we needed something to change things up. We felt like there was something missing. Uh -huh. um, and then when Rich, um, we started bringing back the vocals again, um, that really brought something new to what we were doing. And it was really exciting. Uh, mm. that's one thing when Rich and I are jamming together that I, I love is the, the vocal elements. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. it's really exciting for me playing and performing along with that, um, with him doing the, the vocals. I think that's, it makes my, um, it, it makes things more inspiring for me as well too. Mm. Um, cause I can kind of tie into what he's doing with the, the vocal elements and kind of bring that out in the sounds. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. So is there something special that you guys were or are doing to the vocals on your records? Like, obviously, there's influence from, like, bands that you liked growing up, but I think yeah. that there's also something very Orphix to the vocals as well. <laughs> so do you think that's just a result of it being Rich's voice? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. And I mean, he had, um, I mean, we have all different types of influences that we're, we're bringing into this. He was playing in more punk projects for a little while, just as a side. Um, he had a, a couple of um, kind of uh, garage rock and punk 
projects on the side in the last number of year, years that he was doing. And, and I think that some of that has come in mm-hmm. as well too, even though, you know, you might not think of that as being a typical genre to tie in with say more industrial style work. But I think that that's, um, that's part of it. And initially say the vocal elements, we would have had influence from um, you know, skinny puppy mm-hmm. Canadian there. And uh, <laughs> um, and um, that, that would have been a, a, a big influence on his vocals to mm. start with. And I think still comes in. Would you say that the voice is like the ultimate example of music that you can make without any other tools or equipments? Like also because it's so personal, like mm-hmm. nobody can really emulate that sound because it's your voice. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, is that part of the interest of like experimenting with your voice is that it's like a completely unique to you sound? Yeah, it's another tool. It's another, yeah, sound that way, but it's also has that connection. You know, you have that um, human connection to voice that, you know, it's why music with lyrics and, and vocals, you know, um, a lot of people connect more immediately to that. You can have that immediate connection and understanding. So I think that lends another aspect to the use of voice in particular for Rich, because he does, um, and I think more in terms of language, bringing in conceptual ideas through, um, through use of lyrics as well, too. You already mentioned doing field recordings on a Walkman, which I think is so great. <laughs> um, but I think that also played a really important role in your early work. Um, and I think I read that you were going into like abandoned factories to do your recordings. So did it feel a bit like, I don't know, infusing your music with a bit of home or like a bit of a place that feels fam- familiar to you? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of that was about an experience of place. And I think um, our music ultimately still is like, you know, our, our city kind of ties in in a lot of ways to our, our sound and our music and just the um, particular environment that you grow up in, I guess. Um, but that I think the exploration of the factories that we were wandering through, um, you know, we have that total connection to, you know, our a sense of place. Um, and that idea of being almost like an adventurer, an ex- explorer, um, you know, <laughs> gathering and capturing these sounds. And in the, some of the, the recordings that we would use, say, for live, and, and some on our like other recordings as well, would have come from whenever we were traveling, playing gigs. And when we are still, we, we do record as we're um, you know, things that you come across while you're traveling. And, and that ties in mm. as well, too. I guess it's kind of like similar to what we we're talking about with the voice being something that's really like personal and unique to you. It's also like field recordings are personal in the sense that they only sound that specific way to you in the exact moment that you're recording them. And like, if you were to go back, it might not necessarily sound the same at all. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, they have a certain narrative to them. Mm-hmm. And you, when you, you're you listening to them from a particular place in your life, too, so you have that, um, that you can hear them differently, um, going back to them, um, which, which is kind of exciting as well, too. And another way, you know, reason for going back to different ways of producing sound, you, you just hear things differently, mm-hmm. because you're coming at it from a different position you know, people listening to it maybe can, can connect to, um, you know, get a sense for our, our environment, our space, but also then tie in to something that's within their own environment as well. Is there something that's especially interesting for you as artists to capture a moment in time? Like, is that also why you maybe do a lot of improvisation, for example? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, yeah, capturing a particular moment or often our releases are based on personal experience that we're having or mm-hmm. or like world, you know, experiences at the moment. So maybe we're tying in 
samples that might relate to something that's of a concern that I think is still interesting to go back to. I mean, it doesn't have to be listened to in that particular time frame. And as long as something is um, like open-ended enough, I guess, and not um, so completely focused on one one idea that has some openness to it, then I, I think it can still, you know, have resonance going back and, and listening later. Yeah, there is certainly something about a particular moment in time, and again, that would tie into this year as well, <laughs> the last couple of years as well, too, the certain, certain frustrations coming out in some of our sound. So how does all of this apply to your live performances? Um, you know, we've been talking a lot about the different kind of weird tools that you're using, and so when we're seeing you perform live, are we listening to like recorded versions of those tools or like which, which parts are actually taking place live? So over the last number of years, things have kind of have shifted. So we were performing, say those acoustic sounds would have, we would be performing those live. Mm-hmm. You know, I was out with my spaghetti strainer and, and my and my shaver um, making those sounds live. And then, you know, like field recordings were always, there was always a certain element of pre-recorded, you know, so when maybe we're just holding a, the Walkman and playing that stop and, right. and pause and play. And, you know, that would be how they would be sampled and, and recorded and back. There was no sampler playing them back where you're just actually holding a, the Walkman <laughs> And it had an output to the the mixer, you know. Um, so that, that was live button pushing. Um, yeah, I mean now. So for our current live shows, um, so the modular stuff, um, a lot of that is live. Some of it, I'm I'm recreating sounds that would be say on a recording. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting close to a certain type of sound so I know kind of what settings I need to go to to get a particular type of sound so we can recreate in some sense mm-hmm. um, a particular track um, there'll be some elements that might be more difficult to recreate that we might have um, recorded but mostly what Rich would be playing would be percussion so he's working from the computer uh, a lot of times, sometimes with a drum machine and computer that's also played on the fly as well, too. So the way he has things set up is so that he can kind of move between drum patterns and, and combine and overlay and, and work things um, together on, on the fly. But we, we, you know, often have some divide between music that we're playing live that sounds like uh you know, quite similar to our recordings and trying mm-hmm. to recreate some of that. And then this other half that's more like, okay, we want to make this kind of mood. So you play those kinds of sounds and I'll play these kinds of sounds and hopefully we'll get that kind of mood. And if it goes well, then we'll keep it going. And if it doesn't, then we'll go to this other thing. Yeah. <laughs> and so you have kind of like a, like this kind of compositional thing for our live show. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, we'll, we want to have, play that something that sounds like this track and we have these elements we can use to to make that track and you know Richard's vocals or whatever mm-hmm. you know and then different mood pieces that go in between there. So you guys also did a release of live recordings of yours from the 90s called Primordial State. Um, mm-hmm. So how was it to hear those recordings again? That was fun I mean and and I think when going back and listening through those things, that's when we get in like, oh yeah, I want to use those again. Yeah. And oh yeah, that sound, we haven't done that for a while. Like, why haven't we? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And like, let's, how, that could be kind of pushed into, you know, this new way of working. It was Rich who mostly like cycled through those uh, all of those old recordings because um, there's just so many tapes and mm-hmm. he went really went down a rabbit hole <laughs> getting um, putting those recordings together and kind of digging into old random off the 
off-the-cuff sort of live elements that we just hadn't listened to since we recorded them. Mm-hmm. So in general, like, how is it for you guys to bring your sound into a live setting? Like, we talked earlier about the kind of intensity of, like, moving your body and having this physical element. So I wonder if in a live setting that's even more sort of raw and um, powerful. Is that the kind of musical experience that you're hoping to achieve. For sure, totally. I mean, and some of it might be less, say, obvious to an audience. A lot of, say, what I'm doing now with like modular stuff, it's, you know, I'm moving my hands, but it's not like um, a real like big physical movements that Rich might have, say, with doing vocals or that we might have had with mm. earlier work where we are actually like physically hitting things or moving things around. But there's a certain like, intensity to working with something that could potentially go off and start doing its own thing. So with the, the modular, there's so many different elements involved with that, that you have, I have to be on top of all of that. And there's a certain tension. Mm. Um, there's a real tension that comes into play that, um, I think for me really makes the the live gigs because you can't stop. There's no stopping and being like, oh, that was a cool sound. Maybe I'll try that one. Yeah, hmm, what if I um, just tweak that one little thing? No, like people are listening. I need to keep yeah. going. I need to, to find the, the next sound. I need, okay, yeah, that's that's getting, you know, a bit repetitive now. Like I, I need some, I need to change this up. And there's this like, uh, energy of in the moment, like you can't stop. I have to keep going. And that, mm-hmm. um, I love that part of it. It's also like, um, makes me really nervous. I'm always yeah, nervous before every gig, but then I really, that was, that's the thing that I've really missed over the last couple of years, the intensity. And it's been difficult to make music without that because a lot of our music creation is, inspired by what we do live we played we played a gig um i think i think it was in 2019 before the craziness um in russia uh this uh club um mudador and uh i had food poisoning um (laughs) and i could i was so sick so sick but like we couldn't not do the show and so i was on stage could barely like stand and brought like a bag with me like okay i might need to to throw up while we're playing uh we when we finished that i like managed to get through it without any incident um but when we finished which was like oh that was amazing you should get food poisoning before every gig (laughs) because it was like this other element of of like tension and like drive that had to happen and to push forward and not to be thinking about all these things. I could only focus on the sound because otherwise, you know, it was going to be a disaster. Yeah. So sometimes there's, there's things like that about the live gigs that like this, the uncontrollable I think is exciting. Uh-huh. And I think we really like um, and the cathartic, sort of uh feeling of playing Mm. live and and i'm not really like i said not very vocal person and i'm i'm not one i i I think that's how i get my energy out i guess is what i'm saying Mm. the live gigs are Mm -hmm. a way to kind of get out a lot of craziness from the week or just general buildup of life that kind of comes out in those those gigs and it's just a real cathartic output of of sound and energy that goes into those even when they're not so great too i think still mm-hmm. part of that and there's still some like a real intensity to the to that feeling so what other tools or maybe techniques do you hope to explore in the future that might intensify things even more for you as musicians or for us as listeners yeah there's i mean um we're we've been experimenting with um i'm always experimenting with new um instruments um rich has a new um he he shelled out some cash for the pulsar (laughs) um which is (laughs) cool um instrument that he's been experimenting with at the moment um 
for for me, I think I've been going back to the basics a little bit with with my own solo stuff, um, bringing in um, composition from classical music. Mm. Um, so I'm kind of looking in another direction completely. I, you know, had some background in that and taken like piano and mm-hmm. whatnot. And my uh, my dad is a plays violin for a couple of orchestras. So I think, you know, in some regard, that's kind of always been there in the background as well, too. But I've been exploring that more in terms of composition in in some ways in terms of sound design mm-hmm. um, and then bringing that into the other pieces that you know already have so that's what I've been experimenting with at the moment and again I mentioned the possibility of bringing back in more acoustic instruments Mm -hmm. um, or you know things like guitar or (laughs) you know actual analog bass and and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. well I guess we'll see then (laughs) yeah 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 sure yeah if I ever get the my uh my solo stuff finished then yeah maybe (laughs) but I've had fun the last I've done a few remixes um over the the past few months that have they've been more um I would say noise oriented (laughs) and a little bit heavier um I think like all the frustrations the past year have been coming out in those Mm -hmm. but um yeah there's some some elements of experiment with composition are coming in You've been listening to Orphix's Christina Seely for Air Podcast, episode 43. We'll be back on the last Wednesday of the month with another episode, so check back in April for episode 44. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at, at underscore airpodcast or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash airpodcast. Thanks for listening.